welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. From Paul, whose call to be an apostle did not come from human beings, but from Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from death. All here join me in sending greetings to the churches of Galatia. I am surprised at you. In no time at all, you are deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are accepting another gospel. Galatians chapter 1 Verses 1, 2, and 6. Good News Translation. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're grateful to be with you today. We are in the midst of a series on Anchored by Truth that we are calling Paul's Places. By Paul, of course, we're referring to the Apostle Paul who wrote at least 13 of the books out of the 27 books that comprise the New Testament. We say at least 13, because some Bible commentators believe Paul also wrote the book of Hebrews, but we cannot be certain about that. As part of his ministry, Paul wrote a number of letters to various churches. Many of those letters have been preserved in the books of the New Testament. And in this Paul's Places series, we are taking a look at Paul's letters to the churches that are identified in our Bibles by geographic names. These include letters Paul sent to the churches in Rome and Corinth, as we have already covered those letters. Today, we're going to look at Paul's letters to the churches of Galatia. In the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro, an author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., why don't you remind us of the reason we wanted to do this Paul's Places series? Well, let me start by thanking everyone who's joining us here today on Anchored by Truth. We want the people who listen to us, either on the broadcast or the podcast, to know that we genuinely appreciate their desire to understand the Bible better and the content of their Christian faith better. Because we know that a lot of the topics that we cover on Anchored by Truth are not the kind of topics that are covered on many Christian radio shows. We focus on the Bible, on the inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility of the Bible, And so we know that anyone who joins us has a serious interest in understanding the Bible better and their own faith better. So one question that people who love the Bible will often encounter in our day and time is how can they be sure that the Bible is the Word of God? So on Anchored by Truth, we cite four lines of evidence that the Bible is the Word of God and can be trusted. Reliable history, remarkable unity, fulfilled prophecy, and redeemed destinies. And reliable history means that for those portions of human history on which the Bible chooses to report can be trusted. And the history that the Bible reports does contain some descriptions of remarkable events. And certainly the most remarkable event the Bible describes is the most remarkable event in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus. Right. Now, it would be impossible for anyone today to personally testify that they were a witness to the resurrection of Christ. So we have to base our trust in the historicity of the resurrection in the documents of the New Testament. 
because it is those documents that bring us the clearest description of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, they're not the only documents, but they are certainly the most comprehensive and clear documents about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Well, one way that we can elevate our confidence in the trustworthiness of the reports that we see in the New Testament is to see how those New Testament documents stack up with what we know about history from other sources about history. The extra-biblical sources report certain things about geography and history, too, So we can compare those extra-biblical sources to the geography and history that we read about in the Bible and see how those two things compare. We often note on Anchored by Truth that the Bible is a book that is firmly rooted in time and place. Just about every good Bible contains maps of some sort. We can make maps about the places contained in the Bible because those places were real and they were well known even outside the Bible. And just like the cities and states of today, the places reported about in the Bible had their own culture, concerns, and distinguishing characteristics. And if we match up what the Bible says about those places with what is known from secular history, we also see that the Bible's content is consistent with what else we know. For instance, it was well known throughout the Roman Empire that the city of Corinth was famous for the amount of sexual immorality that was present within the city. So it makes perfect sense that in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul spent more time talking about how to deal with sexual temptation than in any of the other letters he wrote. Yes, we cannot directly test the Bible's report of Jesus' resurrection and ascension, but we can test the reliability of the Gospel writers' reports about a great many other matters. When the Gospel writers report that Jesus appeared before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, we can go to archaeological findings and records and determine with a high degree of certainty that Pontius Pilate was, in fact, the Roman authority in Israel during the time of Jesus' ministry. So we can go to extra-biblical records and confirm that very essential fact that the Gospel writers gave to us. So that's just one simple example of how we can use extra-biblical sources to help buttress our confidence in the reliability of the Bible. Another example is that in the Gospels, we often hear a story about a sudden storm coming up on the Sea of Galilee. So we can go to the geography of that part of Israel and see whether or not those reports of sudden storms coming up on the Sea of Galilee make sense. Which it does. The Sea of Galilee's location makes it subject to sudden and violent storms as the wind comes over the eastern mountains and drops suddenly into the sea. Storms are especially likely when an east wind blows cool air over the warm air that covers the sea. The cold air being heavier drops as the warm air rises. This can produce some tempestuous winds. Coupled with the fact that the sea is fairly shallow, where the wind is hitting the surface, this sudden change can produce surprisingly furious storms in a short time, as it did in Jesus' day. Right. So when it comes to the so-called Pauline epistles, Paul's letters to churches or individuals, we can look to see whether or not the character of the letter matches the character of the place. And the example that you provided about 1 Corinthians is just one example about how this match takes place throughout Paul's letters. 
But it is also important, besides just checking to see whether or not the concerns that Paul expresses in his letters match what we know about geography and culture, but it is also important to see whether there is a match between the concerns that Paul expresses in his letters and with what we know about the development of the early church during the first century A.D., And the book of Galatians is a particularly striking example of how that is true. In what way? Well, let's start out by noting that unlike the letters to, say, Romans or Corinthians or Ephesians, the letter to the Galatians was not addressed to a particular church in a particular city. It's a letter addressed to many churches that were spread throughout a region. Galatia was a large Roman province in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. During the first century AD, it was a major province of the Roman Empire. It was about 200 miles in its greatest extent from east to west and varied in width from 12 to 150 miles. It was one of the largest provinces of Asia Minor. Galatia in Paul's day was a region roughly equivalent to the state of New Jersey, but its boundaries varied at different times as circumstances dictated. It didn't have any natural boundary, except on the north. So its limits varied based on conquests or by the will of the Roman emperor. Yes. In Paul's day, Galatia had the Roman province of Pontus on its east, Bithynia and Paphylagonia on its north, Cappadocia and Phrygia on the south, and Phrygia on its west. So one thing to note right up front is that there is no mention at all of a region called Galatia in the Old Testament. But the Roman province of Galatia appears in four of the New Testament books besides the book that we call Galatians. And that makes perfect sense. At the time the last books of the Old Testament were written in the mid to late 400 BC, the Persian Empire was in charge in the Mideast, including what would be modern-day Turkey where Galatia was located. The name Galatia was introduced into Asia after 278 to 277 BC, about 150 years later. The name came into use when a large body of migrating Gauls, Galatai in Greek, crossed over from Europe and conquered a big part of Western Asia Minor. Gaul, as most listeners will know, was an ancient name for the region we now call France. Right. After the Gauls had conquered much of what we call Turkey, they were gradually confined to a district, and the boundaries for the independent state of Galatia were fixed for them after 232 B.C., So this originated an independent state for the Galatians, and this independent state had three primary city centers, Pessinus, Ancyra, and Tavia. Since they had come into Turkey on their conquests, they brought their wives and families with them. Galatia, as a region, continued to contain a distinct Gaulish race and ethnic group. And that would have been impossible if the Galatians had simply come in as just warriors who then took their wives from the conquered inhabitants. If the Galatians had widely intermarried with the inhabitants of the region, over time their own ethnicity and culture would have disappeared. But because the Gauls brought their families with them, they settled in those regions and maintained their own ethnicity and their own culture. And Galatia remained an independent state until its final king gave it over to the Romans and it became a Roman province. So it's important to note that even though the name Galatia has long since passed into history, in the Apostle Paul's day, Galatia was a well-known region. When Paul, Peter, and Luke mentioned Galatia in the books they wrote, 
People of their day knew exactly what they were talking about, and people in their day would have known that Galatia had a distinct identity, so it would have made sense for Paul to address a letter to the Galatians, even though it was a region, not a single city. Right. So, remember the purpose of this Paul's Places series is to see whether the content of the letters that Paul wrote makes sense when it comes to what we know about the geography and the culture of the people to which Paul addressed his letters. So, as you mentioned, one important point is that the readers of a letter that's addressed to, and I'm quoting, the churches in Galatia, end quote, well, for that to make sense, the readers would have had to know who was intended. Now, a second point is to note that we know from the book of Acts that Paul traveled through the region of Galatia during all three of his so-called missionary journeys, Acts chapter 16, verse 6, and Acts chapter 18, verse 3, both specifically mention Paul spending time in Galatia and Phrygia. It also makes perfect sense that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, would mention Galatia and Phrygia together. Phrygia was the region immediately south and west of Galatia. Any traveler going from Israel and Syria to the west would travel through both regions on their way to Greece, which Paul visited on his second and third missionary journeys. We should also note, however, that Paul was in Galatia on his first missionary journey as well, but only in the extreme southern portion of it. Yes. Because Paul was in Galatia on all three of his missionary journeys, there is some disagreement among scholars as to when Paul wrote the book that we call Galatians. Some scholars think that he wrote it early in his ministry career, and they date the letter to around 49 AD, which would have been right after his first missionary journey. Others think he wrote it during the latter part of his third missionary journey, and they date the letter to around 55 or 56 AD. So, those scholars who date it later note that on his first and second missionary journeys, Paul had just remained in the southern portion of Galatia. Whereas in his third missionary journey, Paul seems to have gone farther north. So it would make sense that after going through some territory that he had not visited or spent very much time in, Paul would have decided to sit down and write a letter to a group who still specifically identified themselves ethnically as Galatians. The latter dating for the epistle to the Galatians makes sense from another standpoint. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, Paul says, quote, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him fifteen days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother, unquote. When Paul says, then after three years, he appears to mean after his conversion. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul also wrote, quote, Then after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also, unquote. Those verses are from the New International Version. If Paul was referring to his first trip to see the apostles in chapter 2, then this is a total of 17 years Paul is referring to. The best scholarship indicates that Jesus died in 33 AD, and Paul was obviously not converted until after that. So, let's say Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus in 34 AD, then it would have been at least in the early 50s AD before Paul wrote Galatians. Yes. So all of this validates the authenticity of the epistle to the Galatians as a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a distinct group of believing churches in the northern part of what is modern-day Turkey. And the content of the letter continues to reinforce this point. 
The main purpose that Paul wrote the book we call Galatians was to refute the idea that the Gentiles had to adopt Jewish customs and practices in order to become Christians. Now, that was an idea that was circulating fairly widely during the first century A.D., and it was an idea that was being specifically advocated by a group of religious agitators. And those agitators said things like, circumcision was a required part of becoming a Christian. So for anyone who understands the gospel, this was a very serious problem. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to save us from our sins. We often say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is made very clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Those verses say, quote, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, unquote. That's also from the New International Version. Yes. The agitators were trying to add works to faith for salvation to be possible. At a minimum, these agitators wanted circumcision to be part of the requirement for salvation. But there were also some agitators who wanted to add Jewish dietary laws as mandatory requirements as well. The Apostle Paul, who had been directly saved by Jesus himself, was having none of it. That's something we heard in our opening scripture from Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. In that verse, Paul said, quote, From Paul, whose call to be an apostle did not come from human beings, but from Jesus Christ and God the Father, unquote. Paul was emphatic that his call to be an apostle had come directly from Jesus and the Father. Paul was emphasizing right at the start of his letter to the Galatians that he had received his ministry directly from the hands of the Father and the Son. This meant that Paul absolutely knew what it took to be saved. So any threat to the idea of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, was not a secondary matter. It was a threat to the heart of the gospel. Exactly right. The agitators who had been troubling the Galatians were posing a serious threat to the Galatians' understanding of their faith. So Paul took on this very serious challenge exactly the way you would expect. He took it on forcefully and directly. And Paul used some of the most forceful language that you'll find in any of his epistles in chapter 3 of Galatians. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 3 say, quote, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Unquote. That's from the New International Version. But listen to how the Amplified Bible puts verse 1. Quote, O you foolish and thoughtful and superficial Galatians, who has bewitched you that you would act like this? To whom, right before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified in the gospel message, unquote. I think it's fair to label that language as being direct and forceful. Right. So again, all this points to the reliability of the letter. Paul was trying to correct a serious error that had entered the churches in Galatia. So Paul didn't try to sweet-talk his audience out of their mistake. He wasn't tiptoeing around it, as the old-timers used to say. 
The agitators had seriously compromised the gospel for the Galatians, and Paul intended to correct that error in a way that no one would misunderstand. At this point, we need to remind everyone that at the time Paul wrote Galatians, or any of his letters for that matter, the Christian church was in its infancy. This is long before any of the doctrinal or creedal statements had been formulated, long before any of the famous church councils had been held where the theologians hashed out such basic doctrines as the deity of Christ and the dual nature of Jesus. In coming to grips with what the life, death, and resurrection of Christ meant, the early believers in the first century church had the oral messages being brought by the apostles and their first disciples, but they had very limited written instructions. The Jewish converts to Christianity had the Old Testament that they could look to, but probably the vast majority of the Gentile converts had limited, if any, familiarity with the Jewish scriptures. In other words, they may have been legitimate reasons that some of these questions about circumcision and dietary restrictions were being asked, but that didn't make them less threatening to the heart of the gospel. Exactly. There were a lot of questions that circulated in the early church. Some were legitimate and some weren't. Some were essential, they directly affected the primary portions of the Christian faith, and some did not. Some affected secondary matters. So as we started out saying at the beginning of this episode, one of the hallmarks of the authenticity of the letters that Paul wrote to the churches is the fact that he had to address questions by the early believers that have now been settled. As church history progressed, the church did hold those famous councils, and the church created those doctrinal statements. And those doctrinal statements were developed and distributed. And eventually, of course, there were even schools and organizations that taught and conveyed those doctrinal determinations that had been made. But all of that was decades, and in some cases centuries, ahead of the church when Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. So from a human standpoint, we see that the issues Paul was discussing in the letter to the Galatians make perfect sense for the stage of development of the church at that time. This is solid evidence that Galatians was written during the mid-first century A.D. By the time the second century A.D. rolled around, some of these early controversies were starting to be settled, and frankly the church as a body was moving into other issues from which Gentile converts had to be circumcised or follow Jewish dietary laws. So what we can see clearly from the content of Galatians is that it addressed issues that were germane during the first decades of Christianity, but not much later. Paul's letter to the Galatians also addressed the very serious problem that agitators were trying to subvert the gospel by adding works as a necessary component of salvation. This was a serious problem, and Paul's language in forcefully rebutting it was consistent with the seriousness of the issue. And we can see that it made for Paul to address a letter to churches in Galatia because the ethnic distinction of many parts of Galatia meant that they had a well-known and distinguishable identity. Is there anything else you would like to point out as evidence within the book of Galatians that provides evidence of its authenticity? Well, we don't have a lot of time, but let's very quickly go over two more points. First, as we mentioned, Galatians was addressed to multiple church bodies, not just any one single church. So as such, it is not strange to find out that Paul did not mention any individual believers by name in his letter to the Galatians. Paul often included the names of individual believers when he was writing directly to a particular church. But in the letter to the Galatians, there are no greetings or salutations where Paul singles out anyone for commendations or for personal greetings. 
And this makes perfect sense because Paul, when he sat down to write the letter to the Galatians, knew he was going to have to send a very strong rebuke, so strong a rebuke that he was going to call his recipients foolish. Paul was a pastor. When he praised people, he would praise people very publicly. But Paul was always very careful with his correction. Second, in the letter to the Galatians, Paul undertook a very strong defense of himself and his ministry because one of the things that the agitators were apparently doing was questioning Paul's authority. The agitators were questioning Paul's authority to put pressure on the Galatians. And the pressure was to, in effect, make the Galatians to appear more Jewish. That would also make sense when we remember that Judaism was one of the officially recognized religions within the Roman Empire, but Christianity was not. So some of the people probably thought that if they appeared more Jewish, it would relieve some of the pressure and antagonism that was starting to be directed at Christians by the Roman authorities. Exactly. As we've mentioned before in this Paul's Places series, anyone who refused to worship the Roman emperor, the Caesar, was considered to be guilty of sedition unless that person was worshiping another recognized religion. Judaism was recognized as an official religion within the Roman Empire, but Christianity's status was very uncertain at that point. In some places, they saw Christianity as just another sect within Judaism, but in many places they did not. So ultimately, the early church went through a lengthy period of very severe persecution because Christianity was deemed to be a new and threatening religion. Well, the Roman authorities wanted all the citizens to declare that Caesar was Lord. Well, the early Christians could not make that declaration because the early Christians, just as we, have only one Lord and Master who is Jesus Christ. All of that fits perfectly together in demonstrating that Galatians was an authentic letter written by the Apostle Paul in the mid-first century A.D. The content of the letter is consistent with the issues of the day, and Paul's tone in rebutting a serious attack on the heart of the gospel was entirely reasonable. Right. You know, many people who have limited familiarity with the Bible have this misimpression that the Bible, because it contains reports of some supernatural events, will have the misimpression that the Bible must be filled with legends that make no sense in the real world. But nothing could be further from the truth, and the Pauline epistles demonstrate that fact. They were real letters to real people talking about real issues that were confronting those people. When Paul wrote those letters to address those very real issues, he would also talk about the supernatural component of the Christian faith because Christians firmly believe in heaven and angels and Christ's ascension and a host of other supernatural things. The Bible writers, when you examine them, when you test them carefully, you find out that they are paragons of accuracy, of truth. Twenty or thirty years ago, there was far less reason for the need for a Paul's Places series. But today, much of that has changed as we have to be prepared to carefully and reasonably demonstrate that the Bible fulfills all the attributes of both being true and being God's Word. Well, as we always do, let's close with a prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our first responders, the men and women who rush toward danger when most of us are trying to escape it, certainly need the superintending protection that can only come from an almighty God. A prayer for first responders. Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, 
we come to you because you are a great God and a merciful God. Lord, we seek your face and your favor for our brothers and sisters who today selflessly perform jobs where they place the health and safety of others above their own. We are so grateful, Lord, that in our community and in every community in our nation, there are brave men and women willing to serve as police officers, firefighters, paramedics, and other first responders. We thank you for each and every one of them, and we pray that you would be their constant companion and guard. Lord, we know that they have all accepted the call to serve a cause greater than themselves. In doing so, they are following the supreme example of your Holy Son, Christ Jesus, who always placed the well-being of his followers over his own. We pray that our first responders will enjoy the blessing of knowing that you are not only their strength, but their Savior. We pray that the peace of Christ that passes all understanding would enable them to be strong in their work and service. We pray everything we do and they do would serve to bring glory and honor to your name. We thank you that you have given us a part in your great work. All this we ask in the name of your precious Son and our Lord, Christ Jesus. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.